You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 266. I'm really excited to have you here, and I'm excited to introduce our guest. Many of you know I have been really interested in the topic of loss of tolerance with foods, meaning you removed foods or a food group in the past, and then you can't seem to add it back in anymore without experiencing negative health symptoms. What is going on there? I feel like digestive issues gut issues, autoimmune disease, it's all becoming more and more common. And so many people find resolution with elimination diets or they try AIP and to try to like manage their autoimmune disease and they see positive results. But many people don't or they saw positive results and then they stop seeing those positive results. So it can be very confusing and complex. And so today we're going to be talking all about that, food intolerances, digestive issues, and then the root cause of autoimmune disease. Today with someone I've been following for a while. Her name is Jessica Flanagan. Before we jump in, can I just encourage you to give yourself the gift of time, health and sanity with Prep Dish. I love Prep Dish because it lets you outsource your meal planning to the resident expert on the topic. She's an RD and chef. Her name is Allison Schaff, and I interviewed her in episode 266. I so appreciate her opening up about everything and giving so many awesome meal planning tips. Allison personally crafts each weekly meal plan using her own well-tested recipes, so with Prep Dish, you receive an email every week with both paleo and gluten-free meal plans. And this year, they've also added low-carb and keto meal plans. You can also get, or you will also get, a grocery list. Um, and it basically has everything you need to shop for and the amount of it. And then instructions for prepping your meals on a specific prep day. So your prep day could be Sunday or it could be, if you work on the weekends, um, it could be a day during the week. And then you spend one to three hours prepping your meals and then you have everything ready for the entire week so that when you get home, you don't have to sit there and think about what am I eating, <laughs> stare into the fridge. You literally have everything prepped and ready to go and you just either throw it in the oven, put it in a pan on the um, on the stovetop, and it's cooked very quickly. So with prep dish, your meal planning, it's completely done. The shopping is done. It's like hitting the easy button. And right now you can try it for totally free. Don't forget this. We talked about this with um, Allison's interview you get two weeks for totally free. Just go to PrepDish.com slash WellFed. Go type that into your phone now, PrepDish.com slash WellFed. The cost will be zeroed out. You'll get the two weeks of meal plans, and you can test it out and see how it works for you. So it's the perfect way to implement, I think, a nice, just get yourself a little bit more organized for the spring. Okay, let me introduce Jessica. Jessica is a clinical nutritionist, co-founder of the Institute of Spiritual Coaching, and is the author of the first mind-body book about autoimmune disease, The Loving Diet. She has spent the last six years of her clinical nutrition practice focusing on working with clients in autoimmune paleo, but has since moved on to more advanced functional medicine-based gut restoration applications to remove restriction from her clients' protocols and work with clients struggling with disordered eating with her program, Transformational Eating. Her website is jessicaflanagan.com. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I have been stalking you for quite some time. <laughs> and um, I keep telling, I kept telling myself, I have got to get her on. Like this stuff is really interesting. And I think it's... Um, it's next level stuff that I think it's like I mentioned in the introduction, this gets really confusing. It's really complex. Health is not one size fits all. We know that. Um, and you're kind of bringing out what I would call the dirty secrets of some of this like one size fits all the AIP diet's great for you if you're you know, have an autoimmune condition, like check the box. And as long as you do it, it's going to work. And you're like, yeah, no, um, that might not work, and it might actually cause more problems. So um, I'm really excited to dive into 
all everything that we have to talk about and really <laughs> I want to I'm like I want to dive into her brain um and I hope I hope today we can get to all of the topics that I want to discuss um before we jump in can you just talk to me maybe about your personal experience with autoimmune disease and then also the autoimmune paleo protocol which may be a new idea or term for some of my listeners because you know this isn't a we started out as a paleo podcast, but this is no longer a paleo podcast. So um, maybe talk to me about what the autoimmune paleo protocol is and then, you know, how that became kind of your shtick and your thing. And then why did you decide to focus on this with your business? Thank you. Wow. That's a great intro. And it is um, a cool area that, you know, I feel like this is, I'm glad you're doing a podcast about it because it continues to emerge as to be the next level piece, uh, you know, which is it, um, we can't be afraid that things are confusing and complex. And that's one of the downfalls of autoimmune paleo is that it took a confusing and complex issue and it tried to simplify it. And what we're seeing is, is that it actually isn't so simple. So I appreciate your willingness to look at this topic because uh, when we look at sound bites and marketing, we want it to be simple. We want we want to see it on paper. We want to say, if I remove these foods, I'm going to go into remission for my autoimmune disease. So we just have to say, like, that's a very natural inclination. But I personally got into all of this because I have an identical twin sister who was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and celiac. Gosh, now eight or nine years ago, and she didn't know what to do. And that was before autoimmune paleo even came out. It was sort of at the birth place of the paleo approach. And it was before the autoimmune paleo cookbook came out or, uh, yeah, cookbook. And all we had was the uh, provocation and elimination diet that Tis Karazian had put out. And so uh, I went on the autoimmune paleo diet you know, uh, in short order in that air at that time frame, because my sister did not feel like there were clear resources then to help her lower inflammation, lower her antibodies. So I got into it for personal reasons. And I thought, well, if I have the uh, genetics for it, I better get on, I better go on it as well, which I did. And then really my practice just blossomed because it was the hot new thing. And it seemed like it was going to deliver some massive healing. And for a lot of people, it, it, it does. Um, and, and so that my practice really encompassed that for quite a long time. And pretty quickly after I started to see that um, people were grappling with the restriction of it and, oh, I have to give up so much joy and things that I love in order to heal my disease. And I kept seeing these really black and white issues come to the forefront that were stressing people out. And um, and, and then also their guts. Over time, pe- the longer I saw people in autoimmune paleo, the worse I saw their guts get. Um, and so that was why I bravely came forward and said, I can't, I can't stand behind something that is helping some people, but making other people actually worse. Yeah. And it, you know, what's, I, I think I wrongly assumed that, well, I think that this is a, a long withstanding thought is that you can fix everything with diet. <laughs> um, and y'all, we're just messed up. You can't fix everything with diet, right? Um, And so as I think I've gotten older, I've worked with a lot of people and been in this industry, this holistic health industry long enough. I think it's I've become personally more and more aware that that is not true and that you can have somebody do a strict AIP diet and their, their antibodies are still through the roof. And so there are other big triggers there's other things that can be causing inflammation and you can eat the squeakiest clean diet and those triggers, those root causes are still going to be there. Um, and so it sounds like one of the interesting things that you have been talking about is that your experience with people is, you know, people go down this path, they restrict, they restrict, they restrict, and then they no longer can bring foods back in. Um, It affects their mental and emotional health. They become very fearful of 
said food or food group, and that also plays into their inability to be able to reintroduce a specific food.、Um, And that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit more.、Um, can we jump? Go ahead and jump into questions, and we'll kind of talk、sure. about all that stuff as we go. Okay.、Yeah. So let's first talk about、um, just a general. Let's start very general with food sensitivities and loss of tolerance. So, what is? And I know that all of these questions, Jessica, you could probably do a whole podcast on, but. I know you can do this. You can, you can、yeah. give the sound bites. Okay, so、um, this is from Amanda. What is the proper way to figure out what is causing your gut issues? What how what do you think about sensitivity tests? I get stomach aches almost daily and can't pinpoint the cause because it doesn't always happen at the same time. Well, I think so. Great question. The first thing is is. Remove the notion that there's a proper way. The only way is the way that's going to work for her, and so that's the very first thing I tell my clients: is this is your journey, and having people who support it, and how what feels right to you, and listening to your intuition is the first thing. Okay, so that's that's the first piece. That's the first step.、Um, the voice that you hear inside of you can be trusted. The second thing is is、uh, food sensitivity tests have a really amazing place, and、uh, again, six or seven years ago, I put them at the top of the list. Let's do food sensitivity testing so we can customize your restrictive diet or your elimination diet. I don't do that now.、Um, I actually do stool tests first. So, if we're talking really practically, first step is believe in the voice you hear inside of yourself. Second step is. Get a stool test, and maybe even more than one, to gather information about what's going on at the gut mucosal level. And the reason why is because we know that leaky gut is associated with most chronic illnesses. And when we look at autoimmune disease or chronic disease, that is a loss of self tolerance. So autoimmunity is a loss of self tolerance. Once we lose that first self tolerance, then it makes it easier to lose our other tolerances, like oral tolerance. And so, what we want to do is is see where the gut stands as far as co-infections before we do a food before we do a food sensitivity test. That's my own personal belief, and so I have rearranged that based on the science I've seen emerging. Where before I would do a food sensitivity test, and now、um, I look at the belief system that people are working out of,、um, and then I also look at okay, let's just get down to nuts and bolts. What's your diversity in your gut? What's your inflammation in your gut? If you have a low secretory IgA, then we have that means that there's very a low amount of gas tank in your. Gut mucosal、um, immune system gas tank—that's what low secretory IgA means, and that's what we look at when we do a stool test. And so that means if we ask our gut to do really big things, it doesn't have—it can't. It doesn't have the the verve, and so we want to know those things. And that also is comes into restrictive diets because when we lower diversity in our diet through trying to lower inflammation. Through an elimination diet, you know that's a good thing. We want to see what we're sensitive to that's driving inflammation, but we're also lowering diversity at the same time when we do that, and that can low that secretory IgA. And so that's the first thing that I started seeing when I worked in restrictive diets is restrictive diets over time. When you don't find the co-infections, lower secretory IgA that takes gas out of the gas tank. You said something that I've actually never heard, which is loss of self tolerance. That is essentially what you're ca- calling an autoimmune disease, because in an autoimmune disease, or when somebody is struggling with an autoimmune autoimmune disease, basically the body is in some way or fashion attacking its own self. Correct. And then secondary to that, loss of oral tolerance means I can no longer consume certain foods or food groups. Right, and so when you lose self tolerance, which is what autoimmunity is, your 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 own immune system starts attacking your own tissues. That our, our immune system gets confused and it loses the ability to know who's the enemy and who's not the enemy. Once that happens, it kind of opens a door, 
and it makes it easier to lose other tolerances, which is why I think so many people and, you know, autoimmune disease now is, uh, you know, is affecting a lot of people. So when we start seeing that, then it makes sense that once we lose self tolerance, it makes it easier to lose other tolerances like oral tolerance. And oral tolerance is this whole idea of I went on a restrictive diet and at first I could, you know, eat almonds, but now even I'm even reacting to almonds. So somebody says that and experiences that now they're reacting to almonds. Why is that? And how can they bring almonds back in? Are you saying, I mean, okay, so you can answer that question. (laughs) I'll do my follow up questions. Yeah. Well, so the first thing, so, and this is my client base now, which is I'm f- afraid of food. I can't even eat paleo foods anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm reacting to that. So I'm down to 10 foods. I'm scared of food and um, I don't know how to back myself out of the corner. And this is, this would be where we'd want to say, okay, what's the first practical step? So the first practical step is from my perspective, get a stool test. So that we can see, oh, you know, oh, you have Giardia. This is Giardia I see all, the, not all the time, but I see it quite a bit where it's silent. So, or you have um, a lot of Candida in your gut, or you have a lot of Klebsiella in your gut. You know, we want to know those things. We want to know, for instance, that your pancreatic elastase is really low, that means that you're not having robust digestion or your hydrochloric acid in your stomach is low because of a chronic H. pylori infection that has gone under the radar. We need to know those things um, because if you can't, if you don't have the basic building blocks of proper digestion, plus you have that low secretory IgA that I was talking about, then what that means is, is that restrictive diets are going to potentially make that issue worse. Wow. Okay, folks, please listen. (laughs) Listen up. Um, Okay, so autoimmune diseases, they have their own triggers, and they're often things that go undetected. And when you do a restrictive protocol, sometimes that can help. Other times, it can make those underlying root causes even worse. Right. Yes. Okay. Because diversity is so elimination diets are interesting and cool because they allow us to know oh yeah tomatoes aren't working for me right right so that's practical but then the other piece is is that it also lowers diversity and so what we know is is that diverse microbiomes just like we would say compost in soil makes for a good garden compost in soil makes for a good healthy garden hmm when we go on these restrictive diets for long periods of time, it removes the diversity to make a healthy garden in our gut. So that's, I love that analogy because yeah. I feel like that's something that everybody can kind of understand and relate to. And so yeah. it, it becomes this thing of like, okay, now we had that piece of paper that had the yes, no foods. You know, we took it a little too far. And now we know that, like you said, there's a complexity to who we are and what makes us up and our processes. And so we want to go back and start honoring that, you know, that diet is practical, but it's not the way we stay safe. Hmm. You keep mentioning stool tests. I am familiar with the GI map test. Um, Are there other stool tests that you recommend people um, getting and or how do people get that done? That is one of the biggest questions I have is like, where do I get testing done? Because a lot of people will go into their doctors and their doctors say, no, I'm not doing that. Or no, I I have no clue what that is. Well, it's a big problem. So first is, uh, well, so you can visit your functional medicine doctor. So GI map diagnostic solutions is the lab that makes this test called the GI map. That's my personal favorite. Uh, and it is something that people can do through their nutritionists, through their, uh, Chinese medicine doctors, their acupuncturist, functional medical doctors. So a lot of people now do this GI map test. It's also covered by insurance if they do it through a doctor, which is so cool to, from my perspective, um, and, you know, it really looks at so like a 16S DNA test. Um, so it's the same kind of technology that are used in teaching hospitals. 
And yet there is unfortunately such a lag that even when, for instance, I see Giardia or H. pylori, and I ref- do the first thing, when I see those things on stool tests in my client population, I refer them back to their doctors. And doctors say, I have no idea what this test is or what it means. You know, I'm just going to do my outdated look under a microscope, you know, or do ELISA testing, um, you know, which is outdated compared to DNA testing. It, we're, we're facing an issue that I see daily. I will link to um, the GI map test in the show notes for sure. Um, so what are the common triggers then for AIP for an auto for autoimmune conditions? Because if we reverse this track a little bit, um, and obviously AIP and restrictive diets and removing foods can help. And I do want to talk about that in a second and how they play a part in all of this. But even if we move further back, say somebody has has a new diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, what are some common triggers for that? I know it's very complex and there's different facets that all play into this autoimmune diagnosis, but maybe can you just talk through some of those triggers like you just did, um, you know, with the certain GI issues like in co-infections? Uh, well, we have infections are a really big trigger. Stress is a really big trigger. Genetics is a really big trigger. You know, so just those three alone can be a huge amount of, you know, the, what is actually provoking um, um, autoimmunity. But what we also know is, is that, uh, you know, if we look at statistics, people have antibodies that they're producing for years often before they actually get pushed into a, a, a clear cut autoimmune disease. So they might have thyroid antibodies for a really long time before they actually go into a clinical state where a doctor can diagnose them. So there's a, a, a extended gray area period usually associated with autoimmune disease. And that's when people say, I haven't felt good for about five or six years. And I kept going to my doctor and they kept doing testing and saying nothing was wrong with me. Hmm. How frustrating. <laughs> How frustrating. Um, okay. What kind of like from your from your experience? I know that you work with a lot of people who have had a lot of, they've been doing a restrictive protocol for a very long time. Um, what, how do you, cause I think that this is a topic that we don't talk about enough. Um, and that's really the mental component and how much that impacts our own health. Um, and so obviously when people are doing restrictive protocols, whether it's they've gone keto and they are keto, 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 and all of a sudden they stop feeling good and they push through it. And then they're like, I want to introduce carbs again. And then they can't. Or, you know, they've done AIP or they've done this restrictive protocol and they take a bunch of foods out and then it's not working for them anymore. And they try to bring foods back in. What percentage or how do you see like our own mental health play into that? Because I think that and this is what happened to me. It happens to a lot of people when you're told for so long that a food is not good for you, you become very fearful of it. Um, and it's one of those things, or maybe you you perceive that that's what's triggering all your issues, and then you realize it may not, but even that's not enough. You know, you still have sort of this like deep-seated fear of a food or a food group. How much does that play into loss of tolerance? And how might one go about trying to work through some of those fears so that they can bring foods back in? It was a fantastic question. Um, there's not a clear answer, except that we know that stress, it plays such a huge role that we know people can't get better. They cannot recover their immune system. Um, and that it also, for instance, stress can cause the same response as a person who is celiac eating gluten. That's how profound stress is. And what we're talking about is this invisible, these invisible things. So food's not good for you is an invisible thing, which is, is this food going to hurt me? That's invisible. It's, there's a practical piece to it, but it's not like, you know, we're seeing, you know, it's it's not like uh, we can see it for our own eyes, right? You know, so uh, when, now if you eat, let's say you eat almonds and you get hives, 
that's a visible thing. But we're talking about this piece that is the what ifs that happens in each of our minds. And that what if question is the invisible stress that can profoundly affect the immune system that a lot of people get caught in when they're trying to figure out a, a roadmap that works for themselves. Yeah. Because it's very, it's, I mean, it's a very emotional thing anyway, to be diagnosed with a, a chronic illness. You kind of yeah. see, your, you look ahead and you're like, I, I don't, am I going to have to live this way for the rest of my life? And then somebody tells you, well, you've got to do this really restrictive protocol and all of these foods are bad. And so you try your best to go through that and you don't get help. And then you're like, now you're just <laughs> hopeless. Hopeless. Well, yeah. So I work in the world of hopelessness. Um, and, uh, and it is one of those things where, um, oh, I thought this was the right way. You know, all these really smart people who wrote books told me this was the right way. My doctor told me this was the right way. And now I'm scared of food and I'm down to 10 foods and I really don't understand. And so there's a profound gift in that place. Once we, once we work with the fear of what am I going to do now, what happens is, is that, people are more willing to vulnerably release a little bit of the control over it has to look a certain way in order for me to be healing. Or I've been using this plan uh, as a form of being safe rather than being practical. And I feel like that's the, the threshold crossover that many people have gone over that really starts making food uh, being the enemy and being scary. And, and, and that in some ways, uh, because we have less options when we can't eat as many foods, that's a, that's, that there's more potential there to give up our ideas of how healing should look. Because we've kind of been talking about that, how healing should look, meaning no carbs. That's how my healing should look. It should be a keto diet, you know, uh, my, my diet should have absolutely no nightshades. That's how it should look. And so this is where it gets really nuanced. The shoulds and the practicals get a little bit confused. And so there's a lot of people right now on a journey that is learning how to trust themselves, learning how to trust how do I define what is practical and where I'm placing too much emphasis on something that's outside of myself to stay safe. We don't want people to give up healthy eating or if, you know, for instance, if someone has epilepsy, a keto diet is incredibly valuable, right? And so we don't want to give up this, throw everything out the window. What we want to do is uh, trust ourselves more to be able to find out what kind of things works for us. And when we do that, our immune system has a really great uh, side effect with that. We, we get tolerance back. <laughs> and that's what I'm seeing in my practice. Wow. So I'm going to jump to the next question because I think it'll kind of unpack the next level for us. Um, this is from Melanie. Assuming one does not have an, a food allergy, so an IgE allergy, can theoretically any food be reintroduced at some point? And then secondary to that is if you tolerate a food or food group really well, and you've tolerated it in the past, but took it out and then cannot bring it back, what might this indicate? I think you've just kind of talked about that. Um, and she also talks about why might a person have switched macros around effortlessly in the past? In other words, you were high fat, low carb, or you were high carb, low fat, and then all of a sudden you can't switch them around anymore. Um, so I think that this is kind of uh, carrying on what you have just talked about. But specifically, you know, what are your thoughts on, okay, say somebody does take out some foods and they have some clear food intolerances. Um, maybe they haven't gone down the path of they only have 10 foods left, but, you know, they don't feel good when they eat gluten. So they've taken it out. Um, can somebody add a food? Can theoretically, if they don't have an allergy, can they, do you think, once root causes are taken care of, can they add a food back in at some point? Yes, I see that happen a lot. So my personal answer is yes. Wow. Okay. So let's talk more about that. Okay. So so you have people who come to you and say, I can't eat gluten. It doesn't make me feel well. I don't want to eat it anymore. Or let's say like I've chosen not to eat it anymore. So it seems like in your opinion, it's the food, it's it's the terrain 
In other words, the gut microbiome, not necessarily the food. Correct. And so there's where we, I have a list that I go through where if someone says that, like they say, why can't I eat pineapple? You know, it came up on my food sensitivity test with my naturopath. What do I do now? Mm. Right. So Mm -hmm. let's just take pineapple as an example. Um, They don't, they don't have a true allergy. So can they ever eat it? Yes, they can. What are the things that we want to look at in order to make that happen? First, we want to look at secretory IgA. We want to look at what's the state of their gas tank at the gut mucosal level, right? We want to look at what is their gut barrier looking like. For instance, is something that I don't use as much anymore. I tend to use because L-glutamine, for instance, is the preferred fuel for the enterocytes. But actually, when you look at things like short-chain fatty acids um, uh, or butyrate specifically, that actually helps form enterocytes. Um, I look at T regulatory cell function in the gut, you know, so what kind of probiotics can we give them that is going to help become almost like an adaptogen and help stimulate T regulatory cell function in their body. We have to look at things like hormones. If they are flatlined with cortisol um, or they have too much, that's going to cause either a lack of a response or an inflammatory response. So that's where I say, okay, great. If you want to reintroduce pineapple, here's the things we need to do. And also then we want to make sure that they don't have parasites, that they don't have a big co-infection that is essentially disrupting the gut, the, the gut barrier. Lipopolysaccharides. You know, lipopolysaccharides are secreted, these endotoxins at the gut mucosal level. It's going to keep the gut barrier leaky, you know, and so that might be related to something like I mentioned before, like Klebsiella or Pseudomonas or Strep or Staph, you know, all of those things that we tend to see at the gut mucosal level. And so now, especially in the last six or seven years, we've been able to really step up our game and say, here are practical things that are not overly expensive to look at that your healthcare practitioners can can absolutely do so you we can make sure that if you reintroduce pineapple you're good to go why would somebody like when somebody comes to you and says like oh i'm allergic to pineapple what is how does the test say that is it because or why does the test say that is it because they have leaky gut and so a lot of these foods are popping up as oh you have an intolerance to it and really it's more of like an underlying um leaky gut issue yeah well what we know now is is that food antigens can cross react with other things in the gut so for instance we know that um, Epstein-Barr and uh, like we, we know that like for instance those viruses like Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus or even um, staph or strep those those kinds if those things are present in the gut it can cross react with food antigens so it looks like you have a food sensitivity but really it's just cross reacting because the proteins of the bacteria and the viruses are similar enough with the food protein to cross-react. So it's almost like a false positive. And that's why stool testing is so incredibly important. And also, I think the reason why people, um, you know, stay on these restrictive diets for so long is they're not working with practitioners who have a really clear understanding about looking at all of those factors. Hmm. I've seen this mentioned before. Um, If so, so obviously there are people who are um, critical of uh, restrictions in general because they say that, like I've seen social media influencers, and we actually got a question about this, which is um, if you cut out a certain food, say it's grains or dairy, you're actually responsible for creating a food intolerance to it. Um, so we didn't really know. Like, So a lot of people would say like, oh, you don't know how good you feel until you take out X. Um, and that might be true. Like, I'm, I mean, I, I want people to know that I think, I, I mean, I personally restrict certain foods because I feel really great that way. And that's totally fine. I don't have loss of tolerance of a bunch of different foods or even those specific foods. Like I've um, reintroduced dairy and don't have a problem and I eat cheese and I don't have a problem. Whereas when I was little, that caused severe, you know, IBS issues. But there are some people who would say that when you 
take out dairy and when you take out gluten. So all these people who go paleo are actually creating their a food intolerance because they're removing it for so long that then the body can no longer tolerate it. Um, what do you is that true? <laughs> and then if it if it is, what's going on there? So yeah, they can no longer tolerate it in some cases. Um, and then you have to go back and look at those practical things, which is, well, what's your secretory IgA? What's, how's your T-reg, how's your T-regulatory cell function? What's your diversity? How's your gut barrier? You know, do you have lipopolysaccharides? Are you producing antibodies there? So that would be that question there that, yeah, we do see that happen. And we would expect to see that happen because, you know, we're kind of walking around with chronic infections to some degree. I mean, look at Lyme and mold. There's nothing that I see make people uh, lose tolerance of food quicker than a big infection and Lyme and mold. Like Mm. my my Lyme and mold people, and like the first thing I say is if you have a mold issue or you have Lyme, do not go on autoimmune paleo. Wow. And I I still stand by that too because what's happening is is that you're placing your attention in the wrong place. You know, we really need to get a handle on everybody's immune system working with that chronic infection. And one of the ways that we do that is the more diverse our gut is, the better the immune response. Now, people are confusing diversity with sensitivity, right? Mm. And so I'm saying that as a general principle, it goes back to that, the, the more rich and diverse your soil is, the better your garden grows. Hmm. But it's different than uh, having a sensitivity to a food, a true sensitivity to a food. What is a true sensitivity to a food to you? Like, what is it? Like, uh, like when we're talking about pineapple, mm-hmm. you know, like someone who actually has a sensitivity to the proteins in pineapple. Got it right? Versus they look like they have a sensitivity to a a pineapple, but it's actually cross-reaction because their Epstein bar is activated. Got it. But I will say one thing too, is that this whole, the, that the anti-diet movement is a, is a reversal of the elimination diet movement. And it has not always, but in it, it has people who are using the anti-diet movement to stay safe rather than to be practical. So we that goes both ways. Wait, talk to me more about that. Can you can you explain? What, when you say well, stay safe, what do you what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? So uh, stay safe uh, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Got it. Okay. So you're saying that the anti diet movement, in other words, I don't want to do restrictions, is a can be. So again, we're just we're saying that this is not an absolute 100. percent Just like AIP is not absolute for everybody. You're saying the anti-diet movement is a way for people to not have to, like, stay safe, in other words, not have to deal with their underlying emotional issues? Uh, Underlying emotional issues, but, you know, that's not to say that everybody has one. It's the curriculum that each person is really working out. I wouldn't call it an issue. I would say, you know, what's in your classroom? What's in the, the classroom of your life? You know, and so for oftentimes, safety is a really broad thing. It's safety in my relationships. It's safety in my career. It's safety in what I my definition of abundance is. It's, you know, safety around uh, is, is this food going to hurt me? Uh, is this disease going to kill me? You know, so this word safety is incredibly broad. Hmm. But what I, I have found is, is that um, there are a lot of people who through this restrictive dieting, of any kind loses their connection to their intuition and they start feeling like they can't trust it and they start feeling hopeless and they are frightened. And so then the the work becomes how do we how do we build the skills inside of each person to soothe themselves while they're feeling frightened? Whether that's oppression in our society as a woman, um, you know, or as a being a mother or the right way to heal autoimmune disease or the right way to be successful. I mean, it has many different, we can look at it. It's very multifaceted. Yeah. So let's say that sounds, that sounds complex as well. Yeah. There's a lot to that. Um, okay. This is a great question that I think kind of follows up on that. This is from Annika. I'd love to hear your thoughts on prioritizing health problems to heal when there are multiple problems that need addressing. 
exhausting mentally and emotionally, obviously. Um, when I was healing, this would have been really helpful. For example, what if you have a gut infection like SIBO, uh, carb intolerance, leaky gut, but then you also have hormonal imbalances. Um, maybe you have adrenal fatigue. Maybe you're you know, dealing with hypothyroidism. Uh, the simplest answer to that is I always go from the biggest down. And so I start with, you know, what's the biggest thing? So for instance, like a parasite, like Giardia, that would be a really big one. And I would start with, we got to get rid of the big pathogens first and then work our way down. Now, can you get rid of a big pathogen when you have a suboptimal cortisol response? It's going to be difficult. And so you know, then it becomes very, it becomes a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, we want, we want cortisol support while you're handling that pathogen. We're talking a lot about gut infections and um, issues, I think, that are systemic, that are, you know, the entire body, um, like Epstein-Barr, you know, Lyme. Let's leave Lyme out of it because I feel like that's a whole other podcast. But how does one say you get the stool test um, and you see these issues? How does one go about treating those issues? Like, how do you get rid of an infection? Uh, well, it probably depends on the style of the practitioner. So some people might prescribe antibiotics, and there's a place for those. Some people might prescribe antifungals or parasite drugs. Those are, you know, thank goodness we have those. Some people might do things like biocidin or grapefruit seed extract or oregano oil. Um, you know, so every, every supplement line has their own version of an herbal antibiotic, an herbal viral, there's homeopathy, there's vibrational healing, you know, there's there's so many different ways. And so then that, again, would come back to what's important to the individual? Where's your, what's your belief system? You know, it always comes back to the number one question that I tell everybody, no matter who I come in contact with, is the question to keep alive in all of this is what's the relationship that you have to this, to your circumstances, What's the relationship that you have to your Lyme disease? What's the relationship that you have to feeling like you can't trust your intuition? What's the relationship that you have to your healthcare team, to your practitioners? You know, so that's the first thing is, is what's my relationship to it? You get so much information from that and start there and then, you know, get people that you feel good when you're around them. They make you feel hopeful. They say positive things. You know, so th those are the kinds of things that I see people make the biggest strides in their healing is when they're vulnerable enough to ask that question. Why is that important? Why is that such a big part? Because I think people would think, oh, I just tell me what I need to do to heal, right? Like, tell, what pill do I need to take? Why does somebody's belief system play into their healing? Um, when we... Uh, so you grew up and you were told that you are worthless, right? So let's just use that example. So someone was maybe abused as a child or they were neglected and they were either told they were worthless or they thought maybe I'm just not important or they got an, a disease and they decided that God was punishing them and they need to try really hard to heal. Those are the things I see over and over and over again. Uh, if we consider from a, a, a energetic or spiritual perspective that the, the universe is built on unconditional loving, then that means that if you decided something about yourself that was not true, which would be a misunderstanding like that, then the universe can only provide you with what it is that you've decided about yourself. Because if we have a universe built on unconditional loving, it will not inflict on what we've decided it will actually reinforce the plan of action that we have uh, initiated inside of ourselves. Now, the problem there is, is that we were just trying to get through hard things. We were just trying to survive difficulty, right? And so, but we, until we just change that inside of ourselves, we can't get a reflect a different reflection back from the universe. I'll give you one example of this. Um, after my daughter was born, I had horrible postpartum depression, horrible. And to the point where 
um, what happened was, was that I felt like I had actually made a wrong decision. Not having my child was wrong, but me thinking I could actually had what it took to become a mother was wrong. Mothering was for some people who could actually handle it. And I had made a mistake, a grave mistake that I actually couldn't handle it. The stress was too much and I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I decided that I didn't have what it took to be a mom, that I had actually not. I, I, so I started second guessing myself. Then what happens is I go out into the world and I get a bunch of experiences that are going to reinforce that of me actually trying to work out that I was second guessing myself, that I had made a mistake, that I didn't have what it took. And so I might get a bunch of lessons of, Jessica, you're going to get some lessons about having you actually work that out. You do have what it takes. So let, let's, let's give you some experiences where we challenge that. It really comes down to, from my perspective, when we keep that question alive, what's my relationship to it, then we can understand what, how, what it is that we believe about ourselves that might not be true. And illness, illness and challenges, emotional, emotional challenges through relationships and career and our bodies failing are fantastic ways to get challenged so that we can uh, course correct any misunderstandings that we have about our life. Thank you for sharing that example, because I think that 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 the light bulb went on for me and I know it went on for a lot of people um, because like you even mentioned, a lot of the times that we um, establish these long-term beliefs about ourselves, we are just trying to survive. We're like just trying to um, protect ourselves. And so I know a lot of people sometimes feel guilt or shame about what it is that they have struggled with. And obviously that's counterproductive. And that also probably has to in your opinion, would need to be resolved and all that that kind of stuff. But um, it seems like you have a really good understanding of how these deep-seated beliefs, I would say, about oneself plays into your own healing. Well, yeah, because we're told like, oh, you have all this shame. Now you got to go heal that. Okay, well, how do we do that? Is it another? Is it another going outside of yourself to heal the shame? No, it, we have what we realize. What, from my perspective, everybody has a heart, and inside our heart is a complete toolkit to heal shame. We don't have to go outside of ourselves. And that, you know, I mean, it sounds a little hokey to say the loving in my heart, but there's a powerful resonance that, in fact, is so powerful and so complete. We don't need to do anything. It's so complete that just by our willingness to consider that the, that our hearts right now have a stronger vibrational resonance than whatever shame that we're holding about trying to figure out how to just be a human on the planet. And to me, that was a turning point in my life, which was, oh my gosh, I don't need to find the right therapist. I don't need to go out and fix all these things, this trauma. I mean, we want to we want to heal the trauma, but I don't need to go out and find another template to do it. My heart is ready and able, and actually my loving is vibrationally stronger than the guilt, shame, and misunderstandings. Hmm. Is that why you have your book? Is that why it's called The Loving Diet? Yes, yes. Got it. Okay. And the transformational eating, because disordered eating is incredibly... Um, it's a, it's a huge weight, you know, which is, I was just trying to, I was just trying to heal my autoimmune disease. And now I have all these other issues that I wasn't expecting that I'm afraid of food and I'm afraid of socializing. And I feel like I did it wrong. And I listened to all the experts and I'm still in this place and I'm very confused and I'm very hopeless. Yeah. That's a lot of weight to take on. <laughs> and I can see how that would play into your ability to heal. Um, for sure. So like if somebody wants to know more about how to heal, how to basically what I hear you describing is empowerment is saying, okay, like I can change my belief system. I have what it takes to like write a new narrative to reframe. Um, how does one go about getting the confidence to do that? Is it 
do I mean, I'm assuming that you have the programs for this, but what, you know, what have you found that works best for people? The number one thing I have found is as long as you stay curious about this idea that everything you need is going to come to help you work that out. And so even with my clients, I don't have a magic formula. Um, What I do is I hold a very deeply loving space while people are exploring this curiosity. And I love how you said that, this empowerment. And that's empowering, you know, knowing that I have a toolkit that I was born with that can help me handle and manage this. That's a very empowering feeling. And so from, from my perspective, I ask all of my students and my clients like, okay, what would, what, what happens if you stay curious like you're, about the confusing pieces, about the complexity, about there might be a, um, a resource that I have that never runs out inside of me to handle all of these things? What happens if you get curious? And so if everybody's listening to that and they said, oh my gosh, what would happen if I did get curious? Usually people have a pretty good experience inside their body when they think, oh, there's no downside to that. And, and that curiosity is actually helps us stay in the student mind. And the student mind is where we can ha- find a lot of information about our journey. Instead of being experts and you, cause when we, when we think we know we've already lost the race yeah. and, and that was one of the reasons why I took a step back from autoimmune paleo is because I saw that there was a lot of that happening and I, I didn't know. In fact, the more I, I moved into being vulnerable for my clients and just copying to the fact that healing can be confusing and complex, but that wasn't bad news. And that's another thing. Healing can be confusing and complex, and it isn't bad news. It's information that we can do a lot with. That, to me, felt, I felt hopeful. Hmm. I love that. And so, yeah. No, I love that. Like, it's confusing, it's complex, and that's, that's cool. <laughs> it's cool. It's going to work out. Um, I actually, if you look at it that way, like I'm seeing it, you know, in relation to my own um challenges physically, you know, um, and all that kind of stuff. I, I see it as like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, you know, we can slowly, like if the path forward isn't, you've reached the end of your rope. The path forward is like, look at all these new colorful ropes. Um, there's all these different things now that we get to do an experiment with, and we get to build a much stronger rope as we, you know, go down the path and try to figure out, you know, a a long-term resolution. And obviously, I think we, I mean, we say this all the time on the podcast, it's not like you've reached health and yay, you're there, right? You don't like achieve, you know, it's not like done, finish line. Um, It really is obviously a a daily thing. And it's something that you're going to like the, like pursuing health is something that you do your entire life. And so, when something is complex and confusing, it's an opportunity, not so much of a, um, oh my gosh, I can't figure this out. I'm going to be this way my entire life. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. I love how you framed that up. Because the body isn't built for perfection. Only our hearts are. Hmm. And so health then, you know, it can we can co- sort of see like, what's the definition of health? That my life is for me and not against me, even if it seems otherwise. I think we I, I think we can end there. I was going to ask some more questions, but I honestly feel like that's such um, a solid foundation to end on. And I feel like we could probably I would love to have you back on because I'm sure so many people are going to have follow up questions about this. But um, you're doing amazing work and mm-hmm. you share a lot on Instagram. Um, and it seems like you have sort of created this new business and new branding for yourself, which is I do. Well, let I, I don't want to end on this like AIP is bad note. So um, it's awesome. It's a yeah. step in the process for R- sure. Right. So so tell me your perspective of then where how do restrictive diets and AIP fit into somebody's healing protocol? And is there any way that you know like oh this is going to be a great healthy move for you versus it's not going to be a healthy move for you? Well, the first thing is, is looking at what's your relationship to going on a restrictive diet. Mm. 
Are you going on an elimination diet to stay safe or to be practical? So question one. Question two, do you feel aligned with the practitioners that you're working with and their view of health? You know, and so then that would come into, are they doing a stool test? You know, uh, you know, uh, now what I tell my clients is consider asking the practitioner who tells you you need to be on autoimmune paleo for six months if they've done it for six months and what it's like. Yeah. Right. Because it's so much easier said than done. And that, you know, we really we really need to have people who understand what it's like to be on an elimination diet and that these diets were not meant to be long-term. They were meant to be short-term, which from my perspective, goodness, a short-term elimination diet, that seems practical to me, right? And that practical safety thing. Um, And so that, that would be where, you know, sort of the first thing I would say, it's incredibly informative. We can get so much information by doing an elimination diet. They're great. We, but we've leaned on them without looking at the other factors that we need to as far as gut inflammation and a stool test. And, you know, and so I just have rearranged my placement of things. Um, and I've realized that this whole idea of using self-compassion, which is, I think, a very effective way with dealing with disordered eating and feeling like people can't trust their intuition. So intuitive diets are a really big thing. And I love that. I think it's such a fantastic route. But there's a lot of people who have been searching for ways to heal themselves that feel like they can't even trust their intuition now. And so from my perspective, self-compassion, which is staying curious, believing that our hearts are a, a healing tool that we can trust and leverage, um, th- th- you know, those things I feel like are really great ways to uh, make lemons into lemonade. <laughs> I, yeah. I, by the way, I really loved your you've, – you've come up with some great analogies. <laughs> I think it's it's really great to have good visuals, um, and I appreciate that about you. Okay, yeah. so where can um, that was that was great, and I think that that's a great uh, perspective and one that I really appreciate. And I think that you are obviously like you know you're you're helping lots of people, but I'm I'm certain that um, many people listening to this have a newfound hope and. Um, maybe have some ideas of how to move forward in their when they are feeling like at the end of their rope, like we've talked about, mm-hmm. or feeling hopeless. So I really appreciate right. you coming on and sharing your thoughts and your perspective and your experience, which you've you've had a lot of it. Um, talk to me more about where people can find more about you. I know we're going to link to your book, which is called The Loving Diet. Um, you have a couple programs and obviously we'll link to your website, but talk to me about what you're doing now and where people can can follow you and get this knowledge on a daily basis. So my Instagram is The Loving Diet. Um, my website is jessicaflanagan.com. Um, I run a really cool Facebook group called Beyond AIP, um, and that's where I'm the most active on Facebook. Um, but and, and then also the Transformational Eating Programs is a six-week deep dive into developing practical skills of self-compassion, getting a daily practice in your life to learn how to trust your intuition, stop being afraid of food. Um, and then also learn practical ways to use your own loving to be with the parts of yourself that might feel lost or scared or confused. Um, and so that's, you know, I've been loving that. And then also the Institute of Spiritual Coaching is more of a deep dive into all of this. You know, so I, uh, Dr. Charmaine Kilcup and I have a program called Radical Loving. It's a nine-month program where we really guide everybody through these skills that you have for the rest of your life. They're skills that I've been using for the last 15 years to trust my heart, trust my life, you know, trust what is that my health woes are here uh, for me instead of against me. So I think that's probably the, the biggest programs I'm doing. 
That's awesome. We'll definitely yeah. link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Jessica, so much cool. for being here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. For more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. Uh, we'll also link to Jessica's Facebook group in the show notes. Sounds like that's going to be that will be very helpful for any of you who have autoimmune conditions or have tried the AIP diet. Um, don't forget, we also have our own new Facebook group. It's the Well-Fed Women Holistic Health Group. You can ask your questions in there. And it's actually where I pulled a lot of my questions from for this episode. I love hearing from you all. So go ahead and join it there. I will link to um, it in the show notes, or you can just search it by going on Facebook and searching for Well-Fed Women Holistic Health Community. Thank you guys for being here. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>